All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 213 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I inadvertently went on a sex education tour with my in-laws. What? You bloody love it. I did not bloody love it. I mean, we had a nice time, but your your mum-in-law saying sex a lot is quite a weird experience. I don't understand. Why? Did, how did you go on a sex education tour? Sex Education is a TV programme on yes. Netflix, right, Jen, okay. and I we see. were in the Y Valley where it's filmed. We saw Gillian Anderson's house, well, not her house, but the character's house. Uh-huh. Turns out my in-laws, massive Sex Education fans, would not have put money on that, but there we go. Well, that clears things up a bit, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Could have meant something wildly different. I'm Hannah Levy, and I'm not sure who YouTube thinks I am, possibly Gary's parents. <laughs> but last week, it played me an advert about how to pull younger women. Oh, wow. Like the game? Like a pickup artist? Yeah, it was, yeah. Did it suggest you neg them? So, like, you insult them and then basically undermine their confidence so that they're grateful for your attention? Well, no, they save that kind of gold for when you've paid them. Oh, okay, cool. This was an advert. For anyone listening, for you them. have that for free. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, who does it? Who, I must watch so many Bruce Springsteen videos that it's just come to the conclusion. <laughs> That I am a 60-year-old man who needs to get out more, possibly, with a girl in her 20s. 
Got any dates lined up? <laughs> I'm not paying the money. I'm going to go to Svengali Jen to find out. Thank more. you. I'm Jen Offord and I spent an entire day reading on Saturday and it was lovely. It is a joy, isn't it? Sounds exhausting. <laughs> oh, it's great. I haven't done that for, I would say, more than two years. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, lovely stuff. Was it books for work or books for pleasure or a bit of both? A bit of both, Mick. It was the book that I read for the interview that I did for today's podcast, which I had read half of by the point at which I interviewed her. And I liked it so much, I actually bothered to finish it. And I finally had the time to finish it. It's a big compliment, so, isn't it? If after an interview. You try really hard to read all of the book before the you interview. You do, yeah. It doesn't always work. But if yeah. you have to read four in three weeks, like exactly. I did the other day, yeah. yeah, I've had that as well. Listening to an audiobook while reading another book. <laughs> Some interesting interviews from Hannah coming up. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. It is the ultimate compliment if you carry on reading, even though it's no longer necessary. And on that note, coming up, I chat to writer Aisha Malik about her new book, The Movement, and the frustrations of living in a world where everyone is talking, but no one seems to be listening. I think it's quite ironic that you sat on your ass for a whole day and read a book called The Movement. <laughs> about silence, though, about silence. Yeah. And uh, negating silence, I'm chatting to our regular music mistress, Liz Buckley, who's giving me the lowdown on Phoebe Bridges and why she is well worth your ear attention. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be rounding up all the action in athletics, cricket, and of course, the women's Euro. And in Rated or Dated, we ask, is eternal youth all it's cracked up to be? As we watch 1992's Death Becomes Her. But first, the pressure is really on the good news story this week. So thank fuck for Bonnie's big adventure. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, brought to you today by Hannifer. Yeah, I missed out on that news, Jen. Maybe other people will have. Well, well, well. Uh, on the second time of trying, if you will, Ben Affleck and uh, and Jennifer Lopez have gotten hitched at the weekend in Las Vegas. Anyone my age or older will, of course, remember that they were an item back in t- day and widely regarded as Benifer. That's what the press. This is, is the nineties all over again. Yeah. If only, Hannah, if only. I shall be young again. <laughs> we shall have Tony Blair back. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Bush Telegraph is going downhill in terms of uh, optimism. Too fucking right. So, let's talk about the independent inquiry into Telford child sexual exploitation, published last week with damning findings about the grooming and abuse of young girls in the town. Tom Crowther QC, who led the inquiry, said child sexual exploitation had, quote, thrived unchecked in the area for decades and more than a 1,000 girls had been exploited. His 1,200-page report is critical across the board, but specifically names four people. Reckon MP Mark Pritchard, former Telford and Reckon Council Chief Executive and Director of Children's Services Victor Brownlees, and ex-police officers Clive and Jeff Harding. It also confirms the findings of a Sunday Mirror investigation which first reported that up to a 1,000 children in the town may have been victims of child sexual exploitation over 40 years, a report that was roundly rejected when published in 2018. Quote, the extent to which that estimate was accurate has been the subject of debate in Telford, said Crowther, 
I have come to the conclusion that the Sunday Mirror's estimate is an entirely measured, reasonable and non-sensational assessment. Crowther's report highlighted the fact that the work done to combat child sexual exploitation was often done by, quote, committed individuals, not top-down directives. And the three-year inquiry also found that abuse was allowed to continue for years and children, rather than perpetrators, were often blamed, including some children being arrested for being, quote, prostitutes. Mm. So what went wrong? Well, deep breath, here we go. Issues were not investigated because of nervousness about race, the inquiry's final report said, and teachers and youth workers were discouraged from reporting child sexual exploitation. The scandal follows similar cases in Oxford, Oldham, Rochdale, Rotherham and many other towns, and its victims and perpetrators come from similar backgrounds. That is to say that the victims are mostly poor white girls and the grooming gangs are mostly from Pakistani backgrounds. Does that mean I am extrapolating something here about all Muslims being paedophiles? Who do you think I am? Tommy Robinson. I don't even think all Catholics are paedophiles. And look at the child (laughs) sexual exploitation uncovered there over the years. But the presence of Robinson and other right-wing voices in these scandals has undoubtedly scared many, including the media, away from the topic. But here's the thing. Unless you're only interested in saving young white girls from non-white men, you're not agreeing with Robinson and his ilk. If you're thinking that the police, still haunted by terrible racism in its ranks regarding high-profile cases such as Stephen Lawrence's murder, has chosen to protect its own reputation within a community rather than individuals within it, come on in, the water's being kept warm by red-hot fury. And if you find yourself bristling while listening to this, don't worry, I'm going to move on from the wrong kind of perpetrator area of the debate because, frankly, I think it's been discussed enough. So let's talk about the fact that these girls were the wrong kind of victim. Mm. They were poor and often from chaotic backgrounds. Would the reaction have been different if they'd been from nice middle-class homes? Come on, you know the answer to that already. And while I appreciate that the reason Sarah Everard's murder received such overwhelming response, and more on that later from Jen, was because she was murdered and murdered by a police officer, women undoubtedly saw themselves in her story. And if that is what it takes to get people to care, then young, working-class girls are not just being failed by the police, school and social services, they're being failed by us too. And we cede this topic to racists who want to use them as political footballs. I think that's interesting. I think the Sarah Everard thing is a variety of things. I'm sure you're absolutely right that class definitely comes into it. And I think with these girls, absolutely, you do see it a lot that these girls are more vulnerable in a lot of ways because of their backgrounds and they're groomed because they're more vulnerable aren't they they are because Mm. it's 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 easier to do it to people who are more vulnerable for whatever reason or it can be you know the the circumstances are there the opportunity is there so I think you're absolutely right there's definitely something of that but I think it's also I think it's also in the case of Sarah Everard it's a very photogenic young woman I think newspapers were happy to have her on their front pages and things like that. And she looks she looks like a nice middle class girl, doesn't she? You know, and well, she looks like the girl next door. Exactly. Exactly. And I think but the other thing I think also, as well as that, is that 
the, the nature of what happened and it is every woman's worst fear was part of it as well that we it's it's the thing that we all fear happening to us but we don't think happens very often that you literally get taken off the street by a stranger but I think you're absolutely right in what you've said as well they need someone to stand up for them yeah and they haven't got someone to stand up for them Hmm. and that's well really tragic and so to the judicial system of England and Wales, to which we are once again administering a slow clap. Last week, Jenny Edmonds spoke out after she was prosecuted for breaking COVID restrictions in a Tier 4 area for attending a vigil in honour of Sarah Everard on March 13th last year. Everard was, as you all know, and Hannah's mentioned earlier in the podcast, kidnapped, raped and murdered by then-serving Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins. A quick recap for you, the vigil on Clapham Common in London descended into chaos after Metropolitan Police officers got somewhat heavy-handed with the peaceful, predominantly women attending. At the time, the country was in the grip of a Covid surge and London was facing Tier 4 restrictions, which meant that more than two people meeting in public outdoor spaces was prohibited. Nonetheless, it wasn't a great look for the Met at the time and arguably it's not a great look for them now as Mm. they have pursued prosecutions against six of those who attended. Jade Spence... Dania Al-Abide, Vivian Homan, Ben Wheeler and Kevin Godan-Pryor, as well as Ms Edmonds. Ms Edmonds pleaded not guilty to participating in a gathering of more than two people in a public outdoor space while restrictions were in place, for which she's received a £220 fine, ordered to pay £100 in court costs and a £34 victim surcharge. I don't know what the fuck a victim surcharge is, but... There you go. I think it's a contribution towards payouts that go to victims of crime. It's a, it's a tax, essentially, okay. on, on having used the courts. Sure. In a statement issued by her lawyer, she said, this prosecution is an insult to the memory of Sarah Everard and all victims of gender-based violence and police brutality. It's a waste of public funds and just goes further to prove that the Met is not fit for purpose. Now, it is worth mentioning that the prosecutions have come as a result of unpaid fines for attending the vigil. However, I think there is arguably a strong case to be heard as to whether or not those fines should ever have been issued. This unofficial vigil, as further context, came about after a planned vigil by Reclaim These Streets was cancelled when the Met threatened the organisation with £10,000 in fines if it went ahead. However, a High Court ruling later concluded that the Met had breached the rights of the organisers of the planned vigil in closing it down. And the Met has twice since then had bids to appeal this ruling dismissed. So it's it's not going away, basically. Like, they're not going to... The, the High Court has ruled pretty definitively that their rights were breached. So I guess the question would be, for me anyway... When I say arguably there's a case to be heard about whether or not those women should have been, or well, rather those people should have been fined in the first place, is if the initial vigil shouldn't have been shut down because that was a breach of their rights, then surely to tell them that they were there illegally is a breach of their rights as well. Do you see what I mean? I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean... We're neither of us lawyers, just to be clear. That's just an idea. And I I don't know what they're going to argue in court because it will now go to trial. I don't know if you remember, but right at the start, I wasn't a big fan of finding people full stop. Yeah. I wasn't a big fan of Mm. somebody else getting to decide whether the reason you were outside Mm. was good enough. Yeah. 
going to a party and like that sort of breaching something that was definitively mm. the problem was with the rules were a bit flexible at the time for whoever they wanted to favor basically <laughs> yeah yeah but also they told you weren't allowed to go to a party yes. yeah. so within that that's fair enough but right at the start we have people being picked up at train stations and being fined mm. because they refused to tell police where they were going mm. and i just don't think that that's reasonable for the police to decide that they have to know what mm. your end destination is and then they get to decide what so I, I wasn't a big fan of that i mean people weren't fined for the black lives matter protests as far as i know so i don't know why this one would be any different but i actually don't understand the law enough but i do object to the idea that this is an insult to the memory of Sarah Everard, yeah. because I think her name needs to be kept out of No, this. I completely agree with you, and that is the one thing that I find a bit uncomfortable with the story, is that actually, like, her family have said they don't want her to be associated mm. with this stuff, and they want to get on and grieve quietly and, and, and whatever, and I think you have a right as a woman to feel affected by it, but I don't think you have a right as anyone to claim her name for something that her family have specifically said they don't want it mm. used in. Yeah, agreed. Do you want a bit of good news, Jen? Oh, my gosh. Actually, scrub that. Do you want a bit <laughs> of delightful news? Yes, even more. Yes. Okay, let's meet Bonnie, a lovely little doggy who lives in Sussex <laughs> with her owners, Peter and Paula Closier. They rescued her from Crete, where she was living as a street dog. So when a gate was left open and Bonnie went on a little adventure, the couple were understandably frantic with worry. She had, in fact, been found at the side of the road by a passing driver who was running late for a dog show, of all things, with his own two hounds. And he didn't have time to stop and look for Bonnie's owners, so he picked her up and took her with him, thinking he could find the owners via Facebook when they arrived which he did. And after arranging to return Bonnie, he thought he'd enter her in the best rescue dog category at the dog show. What the fuck? They're already there. So when Bonnie returned home to the Closiers that evening, she was sporting a rosette, having come third. Oh, Bonnie. Bonnie. I love the idea that they have their own lives and adventures when they leave your house and that they just come back with a badge on. So what? My best mate's mum recently moved from Harwich up to Sheffield and her her cat went missing for like 10 days. And she was like, I mean, the cat is dead. Like, she's gone. And then she just turned up one day, like quite thin and a bit, bit weary. And she just was fine she'd just been away for 10 days and no one knows where my auntie jackie when you know my auntie jackie when we were were little she used to have a cat called gizmo and he disappeared for classic 80s pet name just a (laughs) classic we had a guinea pig called gizmo six weeks or something he was gone for and she was like he's just gone off to die isn't he you know and he came back, you know, and he had a bit of a battered ear and he weighed next to nothing. And, and he came back and he lived for about another three years with them. Where and do they go? What do they Where do? Where do they go? What have their eyes seen? <laughs> They've seen attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Is Blade Runner, Jen? I don't know, Hannah. I don't know. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Welcome to Sexism of the Week, that time of the week where we definitively answer the deeply profound question, 
Is any song more offensive than Crazy Frog? No. Thanks for joining us. Spoiler alert. Actually, Hannah, yes, as it transpires, but for very different, but also the same reasons. The same reason is, it's an absolute fucking aural monstrosity. (laughs) We take a tour of Europe this week where a backlash against schlager pop is ongoing. Do we know what schlager means? No, I don't. Do you? No, me neither, but the, 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 the fact it includes the word lager in it. Well, that's what I initially thought. Kind of suggests it might be a pun on something. I don't know. I think it. I it's think it means something <laughs> in German. But I. But I actually initially thought like, is this because it's like associated with British people on holiday in in yeah. touristy destinations? <laughs> but I. D- I don't really know how to describe Schlagerpop other than to say you've definitely heard at a shit bar in a touristy part of Spain. DJ Ertzi is involved, and to be honest, it's one of the very few reasonable cases I can make for Brexit. <laughs> I would divorce someone for listening to it. It's also, as it transpires, it's also quite sexist, it seems. And let's use this season's tune as an example. <laughs> the song Layla, pronounced Lila, because they're German, uh, <laughs> by DJ Robin. And because it's funny. <laughs> by say again, say again. Lila, by DJ Robin and Schutzer is about a madam at a brothel, a topic I think we can all agree is very family-friendly. Yeah. Who is more, the song says, beautiful, younger and foxier than her colleagues. Good for her. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Seems unlikely, but... I I listened to this song this morning, and obviously I I don't speak German other than to ask, like, where the campsite is, but... um, Voss is lost. Voss is lost. Uber de ample. Du gehst gerade aus. I think that means like over the crossing and then you go straight ahead. Something like that. S is off the Lichtenseiter. It's on the left-hand side, mate. Anyway, <laughs> I think we've all learned something today. Possibly not me, because that might not have been the correct use of the German language. A camping place is called a Zeltplatz. That much I know. Now, the Bavarian city of Würzburg has taken a stand against this song by banning this season's banger, no pun intended, from its annual Kiliani Fair. The city spokesperson, Christian Weiss, said this song may be catchy, rousing and melodic. It isn't. But that doesn't (laughs) change. It's fucking horrible. But that doesn't change the fact that sexist lyrics are unacceptable and aren't appropriate for our festival. It's not an official ban. They're just not going to play it. Fair play to them, I say. However, popular tabloid Bild, which is like the German equivalent of The Sun, says enough is enough, its political correctness gone mad. And now the German justice minister, Marco Buschmann, favourite part of this story, Marco Buschmann makes his own electronic dance music, apparently. (laughs) Anyway, he's gotten involved, stating that an official ban, which again, it's not an official ban. He says an official ban is, in his opinion, a step too far. Now, Hannah, you are an advocate of freedom of speech. Where do you stand on Schlagerpop? Uh, well, I mean, I can't have an opinion on it since I don't know what you're talking about. It, it, it's sort of musically, I can't have an opinion. You know what I mean. You you know what a Schlagerpop sounds like, song sounds like from my description of it. You know. You'd hear it and you, your ears would bleed immediately and you'd be like, no, <laughs> no. Ban this I mean, shit. I have every confidence that everything you're saying is correct, Jen. Thanks. I'm not a fan of banning things in general as a rule, but that said, I think someone choosing not to play a song in the same way that you might choose not to play a song that you don't actually like is fair enough. Exactly. Exactly. It never does bans any harm when the songs are banned anyway. No, because had you heard of Lila before this morning? 
No, well, no, I hadn't. Exactly. I hadn't, no, and neither would I. Mean, I. So yeah. now, now they've had one more Spotify hit because I've listened to it this morning. So <laughs> it works. The system's working, guys. I'm joined by Aisha Malik, author of the new book, The Movement. Hello, Aisha. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Your new book, The Movement, it's very topical. It's very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? The book is about an author, a literary writer who's quite famous, and she is fed up of all the noise in real life and on social media and all these voices and opinion pieces. She wishes everyone would shut the fuck up. And so she decides to take her own advice and she shuts the fuck up by taking a vow of silence. And this idea ends up catching fire on a global level. And what happens is um, the world eventually, but quite quickly, becomes polarised into factions of verbals and non-verbals. And as a result of this polarisation and silence, social and economic structures begin to crumble and governments around the world are like, what the fuck do we do now? People are silent, people are verbal, like, how do we handle this? Obviously, it's, it's kind of a satire, it's sort of a dystopia as well. So the main characters, they're, they're all women. The central character is Sarah and she sparks the movement. And there's, there's two other sort of central characters that, or, whose stories that we're following as well. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, in a world where women often go unheard or women's voices seem to matter less, and obviously we're, we're talking about this, you know, a week or, or less than a week after the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, so it does seem particularly pertinent right, right now. Why did you want to write female characters who actively choose not to be heard? I think that's a really interesting question and it's something that I gave a lot of thought when I was writing the book you know anyone who reads it hopefully sees it as a as a sort of feminist novel but I I do understand because if someone hears the conceit of the book they're like women are silenced around the world all the time why are you writing a book about women voluntarily silencing themselves but for me it was really about an issue of choice and I think with Sarah's character, I wanted to explore what it was to be to have a public platform and to also continually be pushed for opinions on things for which she's not always very well informed. And this expectation she has from people around her and herself to to speak about being a woman of colour, to speak about being a Muslim woman, to speak about being a feminist, having a voice is a really powerful thing, but having to voice your opinions on absolutely everything on matters that are often saturated just because you have a public platform I think can be exhausting and I think that expectation on a woman to either you know quieten down or speak really loudly for me there was something really uncomfortable there secondly I also feel that we live in quite an egotistical society And are we voicing our opinions because we actively believe in what we're saying? Or is it because it's essentially a brand building exercise? I'm a bit cynical about all of that. And I wanted to explore that dichotomy of sort of liberation, 
but also liberation for who, for yourself or for the collective. And I think that everyone is obsessed with their own stories right now and stories matter, obviously, otherwise I would be out of a job. But (laughs) I think that it's misleading to think that everyone's stories matter equally. And the reason that I had these three characters was because Sarah, to my mind, has an interesting history. She's a troubled um, character, but she has a public platform. Her voice reaches far and wide in many ways which is a good thing. But for me, Grace and Zane are the other two main characters. Their stories are really, really actually important and they don't have the same sort of voice. So I wanted to play with the idea of what happens when someone who's told their story, people know what it's about when she shuts up, how these two other stories are able to come to the fore and become part of the public conversation a national and even global conversation. It is so topical. And, you know, as you sort of alluded to, we're we're living in very divided times. Was there like a key moment or a key thing that sort of sparked your interest in, in exploring these topics? Or is it just a sort of general build-up of, of what's going on in the world at the moment? I think it was a general build-up. And then there came a moment where I just wished everyone would shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, that's what happened. And And I just thought, okay, so I'm obviously feeling irritation towards people who are constantly voicing their opinions and not necessarily very nuanced and cultivated opinions. And I thought, why am I imposing what other people should do? What would happen if a character just took her own advice and shut the fuck up? Where would that go? Now, I'm not, I I don't think that if I shut the fuck up, it would particularly have far reaching consequences. But I think that in this case, I wanted to, I wanted to see what would happen if actually people voluntarily started taking vows of silence and how that would impact. And, you know, one thing we don't talk about a lot is how much economic power women hold. I don't think we're aware of how much economic power we hold, actually. And I've been having a few chats to different people. I I spoke to a lady um, at some judging prize award ceremony last year when the abortion ban took place in Texas. And she said, what if all the women in Texas just walked out the state? Like, what would the state then do? And I thought that was a really powerful idea. And I wanted to explore that a bit as well. And just, for example, um, the beauty industry, how it's geared towards women and how much money Mm. we put into that because of social pressures, because of expectations to look a certain way, because also the idea of focusing on your aesthetics has also become a strand of feminism, which I really feel uncomfortable about. Like, how do you negotiate these ideals of freedom of expression, but also feeding into this capitalist industry? Mm. So I also wanted to explore the economic power of a global movement and how that could impact structures and actually that collective unity, how it can change things i think that's fascinating and that's something i've sort of talked about on the podcast quite a lot before about how i can't remember what what the percentage is but women do hold the the family purse like it's women that that buy the shit basically so women are in control of that spending and yet the thing that that i always find really interesting is that even with beauty products which are really aimed at women predominantly it's an industry that's built on making us feel bad about ourselves, basically. But the way that, like, all of the advertising is so sort of male gazy and, and, like, it's... I find that really interesting that we do have this power and yet 
it's not really discussed and yet things still are not really made with us in mind like we watch loads of tv but tv isn't made with us in mind it just it it, it makes no sense absolutely a hundred percent and it's something that I'm looking I'm just kind of picking apart a bit more consciously than I did before and I think the the way in which things are structured we we've almost been anesthetized to exactly what we're doing and how we're contributing to that and the you know again the power that we hold and we're not actually aware of and I mean don't get me fucking started on the beauty industry and Mm. things like keeping up with the Kardashians and Mm. I know you know there's entertainment and there's people want to be entertained but I just think it's just so problematic these high ideals of how you should look and then using feminism as a way to exploit that, it just fills me with fury, actually. What do you mean by that, about feminism exploiting that? I'm interested in that point. Okay, so let's just use Kim Kardashian as an example, who claims to be a feminist. And I'm not telling how one should or shouldn't, you know, label themselves. But this intense sort of egotistical way in which you self-promote and then use an idea, which is, and I was speaking to um, someone I met um, at Bradford Literature Festival, she said, liberation is not about the self, it's about the collective. Mm. And if you're promoting an idea, for example, about feminism, and purely using yourself, Mm. that's egotistical, and that's an that's antithetical to the idea of liberation. If we're talking about feminism mm. then we we do and I, I'm beginning to feel this a lot more strongly uh, in the past maybe year or so then we need to think about the collective and not the self and because I think we live in a very egotistical society especially because of social media especially because of the way we're expected to self-promote so we need to be careful that we're not thinking that we're doing one thing but actually just feeding into the, the sort of capitalist structure of things it's quite hard isn't it I think in a way you know obviously you you have a platform as a writer I have a bit of a platform as a podcaster and also as a writer and it is a bit hard not to get sort of sucked into the idea that your voice is a bit important do you know what I mean like it's quite hard to resist that when everything around you sort of it's so difficult and I know from experience when I first started out writing and I, I wrote Sophia Khan is not obliged which is like a rom-com Muslim Bridget Jones. And I was a hijabi back then. And I was constantly battling with myself about, am I being asked because they actually give a shit about what I'm saying? Or is it because this is aesthetically ticking a box? Muslim woman wears a hijab, writing about Muslim dating. And, you know, I was asked loads of questions about that and the burkini ban in France and fucking what have you. And I don't know, I was doing one thing, I was writing books, but I was being asked about all these issues. And I almost feel like I don't need to say all these things, because they're all kind of explored with much more nuance Mm. in in the things that I write. So me and spouting out sort of sound bites didn't feel to me very authentic. But I was sort of driven towards that because of publisher expectation which is fair enough because you know they have books to sell but at the same time it it didn't sit very comfortably with me and I think now you know being a bit more of a seasoned writer I'm not necessarily more popular that's for sure but just you know just being a bit more aware of exactly what is driving me and why I'm writing the things I'm writing has 
been quite important. You touched on like on the publishing industry there and, and the book is sort of in a way a bit critical of the publishing industry. <laughs> did, did it worry you at all to write a book that was critical of the publishing industry? <laughs> I love the publishing industry. No, I don't. I do. I mean, it's a it's a conflict, and I think it's it depends where you're coming from, right? I'm just a bit cynical about these diversity pushes and what actual impact they're doing, because I think that you know you can appear to be making changes on the face of it by introducing all these amazing diversity initiatives, but structurally nothing is actually changing. And I I find some of the things that are going on in the industry slightly problematic with these diversity drives. And I'm not saying, you know, I think we've made progress. I think it is making progress slowly. But are we publishing really great books? Or is it just an exercise in, oh, no, we've done this, we've told people we've published this brown or black author, but actually the books didn't sell. And so we now know that diversity doesn't work. Let's go back to the way things were. Is that what's going to happen? Because, I mean, I don't I don't know what the answer is, but I do think that I'm not quite sure what it's doing as an industry right now. There seem to be so many books out there and... It, it just feels a bit, a bit crazy. No one gets a particularly easy time in this book. It's it, it, like it's easy for me to say, oh, you know, as people of the left wing persuasion often do on social media, you know, right right wing people are Nazis because I don't agree with them, or or for the right to say left wing people are snowflakes. But in reality, we're all pretty fucking awful, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, anyway. And and I think you convey that with subtlety and humour was that a point that that you wanted to make that we are all as bad as each other yeah essentially I think we're all dicks really or we all (laughs) have the potential to be dicks at least I'm very left-leaning myself but I think it's really easy to be like oh all right-wing people are fucking you know as you said Nazis and whatever but I think you know you've got the you've got people on the left being so sort of so intent upon their way of thinking that they don't look at other avenues of thought and I think this works both ways you know Mm. it's very totalitarian isn't it on both sides I think absolutely and I also think it's really problematic if you have a personality a social public profile person who might be of the opposite political persuasion to you to just say everything they say is mired in problems because you can get wisdom from everywhere you know you don't have to cut someone off just because there's this one thing that you don't agree with them on because they might speak a lot of sense in other aspects and I think that insidiousness within society right now is I think it's making us our conversations have become very barren as a result of that I never write characters who are absolutely you know, perfect in their view. Sarah is a very flawed character. Zainab, who lives in a very oppressive household and suffers abuse, she's flawed as well. In my third book, This Green and Pleasant Land, I wrote about characters who people might see as racist, but I didn't want to demonise them. And I think it's really easy to demonise people who don't hold the same perspectives as you and whose perspectives sometimes you actually find quite abhorrent. And obviously there's always going to be a line but I don't think that's going to to help us in any way. And I think it's 
important to open ourselves to Mm. the possibility that we can all be a bit of a dick. I wanted to ask you, given that we live in this kind of era of perpetual outrage, shock jocks, fake news, egos, social media, all of these things. I don't know, it's sort of like a perfect storm really, isn't it? And and I don't know how you unpick it all, what came first, etc, etc. I, I do kind of suspect sometimes that Twitter might be at the heart of most things that are awful. But <laughs> this is quite a big question now. Uh-oh. How are we going to save ourselves? What do you think Uh-oh. needs to shift? Let's just all retreat onto a (laughs) desert island and just shut the fuck up and reflect. I don't know. Unfortunately, I think that society is built in a way where we're not allowed to stop and think. So, you know, we are also expected, just as human beings, not only as women, but we're expected to constantly be doing something. And this idea of incessant productivity, I think, is really impacting a lot of people I speak to people nowadays everyone's tired everyone's exhausted physically mentally and I think that one thing that lockdown I feel taught everyone was that we don't have to live such a fast-paced life and I think a lot of people felt that there would be some sort of change for the better post-lockdown and Instead, it seems to have gone full throttle let's make up for the past two years madness and I don't know I think that nothing nothing's going to change on a wider level structural level until we demand those changes like people who are being told to come into the office five days a week fuck off like <laughs> everyone knows no one needs to do that anymore yeah. like what are you trying to what are you trying to prove here well I think you're trying to get people to buy <sighs> sandwiches from Marks and Spencer's aren't you but... <laughs> it's just trying to also prioritize just what you what you want to achieve in life do you just want to play keeping up with the Joneses for the rest of your life or do you want to have some fucking peace and serenity and space to reflect on all these ideas and all these voices and all these um these social injustices and just take a minute and think oh actually let me look into this a bit more in a bit more depth as opposed to knee-jerk reactions I know that sounds really simplistic and also hackneyed I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before but that's all I that's all I have to <laughs> offer unfortunately that's fine like hackneyed platitudes it's a big question like I said <laughs> So you mentioned Green and Pleasant Land and Sophia Khan is not obliged, both of which have been optioned for television. So that's quite exciting. How involved are you in that process? This Green and Pleasant Land, I was quite involved in just the consultation and speaking to the screenwriter, Juliet Tohidi, who wrote Calendar Girls. So she's great. So that was that was good. I'm, you know, things get optioned quite a lot and whether they actually then make it to TV is, a, is another thing. I don't know if people are ready in the UK for a, a mosque in the village. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't think people want to see that on TV. Who knows? And with Sophia Khan, you know, um, that's been optioned for a while now. And I'm quite involved in that process, which is really good fun. But we'll see what happens. So fingers crossed something comes of, of those. But is there anything else that you're up to right now? You've got a, got a fifth book in the pipeline? Yeah, yeah. I'm starting work on my fifth book. And yeah, I've written another another book on the side. Where can we follow you on social media to see you saying really <laughs> nuanced things in uh, in 280 characters? Uh, I'm on at Aisha underscore Malik 
on Twitter and Aisha82 on Instagram. Don't bother following me because <laughs> honestly, I don't have anything to say that hasn't already been said. I'm just just fucking shouting into the echo chamber of life. I, well, I'm a big fan of this honesty, but perhaps people will be able to see where you're doing events and things like that to promote the book, which they may wish oh, to. Oh, yeah, that too. Sorry, publisher. Yes, <laughs> do follow me and come to all my events and buy the book. It's quite, I think it's quite good. It is. It's, it's, it is genuinely very good. I'm enjoying it very much. I, I really am. Like I said, I think it's very funny, but I think it's it's very well observed as well. It's, it's very well observed. I think people will read it and really very clearly see the characters <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Aisha, thank you so much for joining me and all the best with the book. Thank you, Jen. Alright, alright, I am joined at my kitchen table by our regular music authority and all-round smasher, Liz Buckley. Liz, hello. Hello, that's a nice intro. Do you like being the authority on music? <laughs> I like being at your kitchen table. Okay, <laughs> you're a sweetheart. So last time I saw Liz was at a Jack White gig at Hammersmith Apollo and everyone, including Jack, was having a very lovely time. Oh, wasn't he smiley? It was really cute. So I've never seen him crack a smile before. No, you don't go to a Jack White gig for the lols. <laughs> He it was, was adorable. He was, was having very a sweet. lovely, lovely time. I think he finally feel liked. Has London not liked him? The press are hard. The press are awful. <laughs> journalists don't fucking trust him. <laughs> anyway, Liz, I am excited about who we're talking mm. about. Not because, and you know, absolutely hands up here, listeners. I knew anything about her before researching <laughs> for this chat. But because she calls herself Phoebe fucking Bridges. <laughs> and that swear fills me with a childish delight. <laughs> And it turns out I do also like a vibe man, not Good. least because she's got a big whiff of Elliot Smith about her. She's a big old fan, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's got posters on a wall, do you reckon? She has a massive poster of Nick Cave behind her on her Zoom calls and also a painting of her much-beloved dead pet. So I really feel like her and me could be friends. <laughs> Phoebe Bridges. <laughs> it's actually me. It's fucking me. Phoebe fucking me. <laughs> uh, Liz, with Phoebe fucking Bridges, you have once more introduced me to some ute. Now, this went very well with Billie Eilish. Mm. had a lovely time. She's on several of my playlists now. Hey, results. So tell me a little bit about Phoebe Bridges and why you wanted to talk about her. Okay, well, this is your way in. She's friends with Billy Eilish. Does that mean I'm friends with both of them? No, I think you have to be. That's the modern social media, isn't it? Okay. Billy Eilish's dad has several Phoebe Bridges t-shirts. <laughs> Am I friends with Billy Eilish's dad as well? Oh, come now? on, six degrees of separation. And Kevin Baker. This has got out of control, Liz. <laughs> it's probably not the press release she wants, is it? Actually, her press releases are amazing. Normally, I'm not a fan of a press release, but never dream of quoting one. But her press releases are very, very funny because she does her own. She has her own record label and everything, looks after her own press. And her press release for her second album, Punisher, describes her sound as the humiliating process of being a person. <laughs> Ooh, well, that gets you right in the feels, no, I really, it? I mean, I, this is a woman I can relate to. And she also says her album sounds like hitting the road with a six string and a UTI, which very much feels like a modern Dolly Parton to me. <laughs> UTI? <laughs> There's a brilliant thing, actually, where she sent out um, a blurry photo of herself with her pet pug. 
She takes her pug on tour with her absolutely everywhere. Not the dead one. She had a pug called Max. He d- he made it to 16, I believe. I've got the animal facts. Yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> I pay attention to this sort of thing. <laughs> now she has a pug called Maxine who she takes on tour. This is the female replacement. <laughs> Call her a replacement. She is a pug in her own right. She looks exactly the same. She's got the same name. But she said extra points to every publication that has included the actual photo I sent out with the press release <laughs> that looks like me. Look like shit in bed with my bug <laughs> there's a lot here to like before you've even had a listen quote frankly she is only just really coming eye to eye with her audience outside of LA because she kind of grew up around there she's 27 now but sort of started around the age of 20 and uh, June 2020 is when she sort of ballooned and couldn't tour because of Covid so is that when Punisher came out that's her second album yeah um, so she sort of became enormous without sort of really understanding what had happened Mm. you know so she's sort of in the rough trade albums of the year ends up being nominated for four Grammys and everything and all this is happening while she's stuck at home on a treadmill <laughs> yeah i think that's how it's going to happen for me if i'm honest <laughs> so she was at glastonbury recently yes her glastonbury debut which was a lovely lovely thing and quite outspoken very typically i'm going to say phoebes <laughs> it was really phoebes she calls herself phoebes that's not me being a dick her fans are fobs that's actually in the urban dictionary fobs she calls herself phoebes the fans are fobs it really reminds me, my friend's got a little uh, schnauzer called Phoebe, and she's obviously Fee Fibbles Fitbit. <laughs> Phoebe Bridges, is, she actually did a quiz for NPR on uh, feeble bridges. Feeble bridges. <laughs> bridges that are perhaps a little bit, you know, uh, architecturally. Oh, yeah. It took me way too long to get that. Yeah, I like her. And I she like did her. a video with Phoebe Waller Bridge. She loves a pun. Her Twitter is Trader Joe. Uh, there's a shop chain in America called mm. Trader Joe. They're um, union busters and in trouble with Greenpeace. She lo- she really loves a pun. Her Instagram used to be called Fake Nudes. Which really <laughs> her sense of humour is pretty much my favourite thing about her, to be honest with you. I think she's a very, very funny woman. Her music is very beautiful. It's got almost a bit sickly sweet. It's very gorgeous, ethereal female singer-songwriter but if you listen to her lyrics she's incredibly witty and she is really very self-aware and sort of punctured there's a slight Leonard Cohen nature to it where there's a sort of deadpan knowingness Mm. she's been described as the patron saint of sadness she is a little bit too sickly sweet for me in some ways but there are certain songs that I really like motion sickness is my favorite but also, I Know the End, which is a glorious, visceral ear feast, uh, the final song on the Punisher album. And when she does score a hit with me, it's like a direct hit to the gut, heart, goosebumps and tear ducts. <laughs> well, good. well, Motion Sickness is about the miserable relationship she had with Ryan Adams. So it's not sickly sweet, really. He was twice her age. She was only 20. Promises of putting out a single for her. There's an, a New York Times 2019 expose, I think it was, testimony of several women allegations that he'd promised female artists help with their career while pursuing sex, basically, then withdrawing offers of helping them if he was spurned, subjecting them to various different forms of abuse. Doesn't sound like anything a powerful man would do. <laughs> well, Caveat's Adams has denied the allegations, <laughs> but he did apologise for any mistreatment of the following year. Yeah. <laughs> Only took him a year. And he's just out of rehab, I think, and he's been sober and now he's going to make his comeback tour. So that's great. 
I think she's incredibly classic. So the, the sickly sweetness sits so well with it. If if you listen to the lyrics, that's the best thing about it. So in uh, Motion Sickness, which is also my favourite, actually. So, you know, it, it's got the tunes. But she says, why do you sing in an English accent? I guess it's too late to change. Yes. That was good. <laughs> I was like, oh, Phoebes. Yeah. Feebles, if I may. Yeah, Excellent. It's, it's cussing. Stuff you said when you met me, you were bored. And you, you were in a band when I was born. <laughs> it's quite the age difference. Yeah and follow up tweet fucking love her for this next time you feel like shit just know I once let a man whose top song is an acoustic cover of Wonderwall hurt me <laughs> oh my goodness she's very very self aware I find her very witty she's brilliant on Twitter actually lots and lots of very funny things she retweets jokes about herself she's quite uh, self deprecating uh, post a photo taken before the pandemic not knowing what was coming takes a picture of her own album cover <laughs> which is her in a skeleton outfit with a red background on her own <laughs> oh. couldn't be more prescient really yeah, she was prescient. had a very amusing row with uh, David Crosby she um, smashed her guitar on uh, Saturday Night Live David Crosby was very disparaging about this calling her pathetic and she replied by saying little bitch <laughs> And then she sent him a video of Mariah Carey singing Obsessed. Why does David Crosby feel he needs to have an opinion on that? I think he was asked, actually. Someone said, what do you think of this? But he said it was pathetic and stupid. I'm not sure that anybody would have said that about Hendrix. She came back with all sorts of uh, replies, actually. It was very, very funny. Can't believe I was the first woman ever. (laughs) She also auctioned off the guitar for charity, actually. And the guitar maker said in advance, good luck trying to break that. They're really hard. And she managed it. Yeah, she did manage it. There she is. She's very, very funny, actually. My favourite joke about her that she retweeted herself was uh, she always wears skeleton outfits and she has white blonde hair. She has a batwing guitar. She sings songs about Halloween, funeral killer, copycat killer, (laughs) ghost skeletons, that's her thing. And uh, somebody said, asking eight-year-olds in skeleton onesies to name five Phoebe Bridges songs, (laughs) which is the perfect Ramones comeback. I fucking love her for that. My friend's kid actually went to a Halloween party as Phoebe Bridges. That's how well known she is now. <laughs> oh, we're so old. I'm so old. I hadn't heard of her. And then when I started researching her, I was like, oh, she is a global superstar. Oh, yeah. I mean, she supported the Stones at Hyde Park. She's on Paul McCartney's last mm. album. She played with the National, Taylor Swift, Bright Eyes, Jesus and Mary Chain, 1975, Jackson Brown. She's everywhere. Absolutely she is everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> also, at Glastonbury, obviously, it was around the time that the news came through that Roe v. Wade had been overturned and she had a lot to say about that, didn't she? Yeah, she's very, very vocal on this and God bless her for that. And it, mm, was, it was totally. very refreshing, actually. So, like, you know, it's very common for Americans to come out on stage and go, hello, Glastonbury. <laughs> she came out and fuck that shit, fuck America and fuck you. And then a su- fuck the Supreme Court. If you're feeling helpless, this is what you can do. Planned Parenthood is never a wasted dollar. You know, like positive things that you can actually do about this stuff. She's donating a dollar a ticket to related causes. Any undocumented person that needs an abortion in the States, that's going towards that. Mm-hmm. She's always listing charities and places you can donate to. She tweeted literally hours, I think, after she was at the Met Gala. <laughs> I had an abortion in October last year whilst I was on tour. I went to Planned Parenthood where they gave me an abortion pill. It was easy. Everyone deserves that kind of access. Yeah. So, you know, she's no prom queen. She wants to help people. She wants to be out there saying what she stands for. And she's very, very good at it. And actually, even when she doesn't get to say what she wants, 
So I saw her the other day. She uh, she was plugging some radio show that she was on. And you can't hold her back even when she has been censored. She said some things I said about Brett Kavanagh were removed for legal reasons. By the <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like her. There's been a, another thing where she was very uh, outspoken about a studio owner called Chris Nelson who brought a defamation lawsuit against her for being outspoken. And she basically said, in response, I'm standing by this because what I said was true. That's all to do with her friend, Emily Bannon. And she's very, very loyal to her friends for forever plugging them. She's very collaborative. Like, her last album has an endless amount of guests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Nick Zimmer, War Painter on there, uh, Conor Oberst, Bright Eyes. She's very, very collaborative and loyal, which is another wonderful thing about her, I think. She's got a playlist on Spotify that she has put up herself called This is Phoebe Fucking Bridges, I think. Sorry, listeners, I I would need to check that. But it's along those lines. And as well as her own songs, there are songs from other people in there. And I thought that was really lovely. Like, well, actually, people have come here and they've found this playlist of me, by me. But I'm going to sneak in some stuff I think they should listen to. Was it a lot of stuff from her label? Yeah, yeah, like loads. (laughs) All from Satisfactory Record Label. You have to say that fast with an American accent. Another pun, yeah. Yeah, that is satisfactory. Yeah, there's a lot on her label that she is plugging. But yeah, I love that, that she's bigging up other people. So she's outspoken in the press. She's outspoken when she's at a gig. She's outspoken on social media. She's got to be putting some of that into her lyrics as well, Liz. Yeah, and not necessarily always in a very cutting way. But there's, I love the sort of little subtleties about it. Her sort of biggest song I suppose is Kyoto which is this really sparkly sunshine pop it's got this beautiful brass section it's yeah, very it's a bit Beirut, some of the end bits yeah yeah the lyrics are actually sort of stuff about her looking at the chemtrails in the sky <laughs> how she doesn't want to be on tour she thinks she wants she's got this sort of wanderlust and when she gets there she actually wants to go home <laughs> Punisher is a song that's pun- the the word Punisher is someone who doesn't know when to stop talking, and she sort of says that she did that herself, where she was just on her own too much, and she sort of punished herself for that. So she she's talking about I, I mean I'm, pre- I'm presuming here, but like a woman that's with somebody she liked and it didn't work out, and she's describing their house, and she's like the house where you live with Snow White. I wonder if you ever thought the storybook tiles on the roof were too much, but from the the window it's not that bad a show. If your favourite thing is Dianetics and Stucco. (laughs) It's really fucking... She's harsh. She's a hard burn. I don't think you'd want to get on the wrong side of Phoebe Bridges. No, I hope she never hears this because she has a lot to say about me getting it wrong, I think. But also there's a there's a very teenage side as well. I see you is kind of another one that's kind of another pun, of course. I see you. Yes, <laughs> I, I got it. <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's cutesy and it's slightly teenage. I feel something when I see you, and then that immediately segues into I hate your mum. <laughs> it's amazing what she can come out with when she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's Kinsey all backing vocal. Like that's all mums. <laughs> <laughs> there was a knowingness there that you chuckled. <laughs> Sorry, Ad. Garden song, that sounds like the cutest sort of setup for a song, but the first verse is literally her talking about burying a skinhead. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Honestly, ha- have a little listen. I think it might, that might be your way in. 
I liked a lot of the ones I listened to. When she's got a bit more sort of rock and a bit more punk attitude, mm. I really enjoyed those. Never I think you like the end, the, I know. The, that's the one, the yeah. screaming. and Yeah, there's some yeah. screaming. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of goes into this jazz meltdown. Where it's it wasn't really... jazz, Liz. It's not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> well, meltdown, it's not jazz. Yeah. But like, it, it's a big cacophony, isn't there? And mm. then she starts screaming yeah. like an animal. I like that And then one. there's this really heavy breathing. And then she just does this little laugh at the end because she's yeah. amused herself by how ridiculous it all is yeah it felt like a Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> there's this brilliant video that I saw online somewhere of someone walking past the stadium like what the fuck is happening but I do like that she can do something like that and it is juxtaposed with stuff that is very gentle and sort of woman with guitar yes. as I would put yeah, it yeah, which yeah. would not get me to buy a ticket but I would sit through that stuff to get to the rockier stuff because I really mm. enjoyed that a lot and I listened to a few of them a few times and was like, oh yeah, I like these. They will go on Maybe some playlists. Maybe you could do her next press release. I listened to some of these a few times. Yeah. <laughs> I just need to take a really blurry photo of her and her, <laughs> dead pets. And Maxine. All about the beloved ex-pets. Elton John said that he would punch somebody if Phoebe Bridges didn't win a Grammy and she didn't she was up for four and she didn't but she uh, responded by uh, looking sad with empty hands and said me holding my Grammys oh has Elton punched anyone do we know he was under a lot of pressure he was I don't know that he I don't know that he'd be able to deal with the the delivery bold bold claim I think she'd be much more capable actually yeah yeah. (laughs) Taylor Swift is a massive massive fan of hers and uh, got in touch she had a song that she didn't put on red and uh, was about, I mean, this sounds so ridiculous, but worrying about how women become sort of like irrelevant as you're getting older. You know, she's no longer the spring chicken that she was when cat landed behind me. <laughs> I'm going to pause just, sorry, while I feed the cat. Me <laughs> You were saying about women becoming irrelevant. Oh, yeah. So Taylor Swift is worrying of all people that, you know, like women get older and then they kind of, you know, like an old car are no longer interesting to people. And there's that sort of extra pressure that we both put on ourselves and also men put on us. And she thought the best way to revisit that and actually to make that a strong song was to ask somebody she was a fan of who was younger than her to duet with her and to sort of reclaim it and go, you know, I'm not scared of getting older and I'm, I love the younger generation. And That's it, because women are so often pitted against each other like there's there's feuds in the music industry or in acting and mm. like you're seen as you're you're going to be replaced by the younger or the, model or the new whatever yeah. you know like i compared her to dolly even though she's absolutely nothing like dolly but we all need our reference points mm. and it was taylor's fear of becoming the past i suppose so that was that i think that was a brilliant thing taylor swift still 35 years younger than i am <laughs> <laughs> And that's her press release. (laughs) Nailing them tonight. (laughs) Liz, if anyone is like me, new to Phoebe Bridges, where, if they're interested, could they maybe see her very soon? Well, she's sort of everywhere, actually. She did CBBS the other day. She's on the Minions soundtrack. She's got a residency at Brixton. She's playing Latitude. She's basically near you, which is very her, because it's spooky. You can follow Phoebe Bridges on the Twitter at Phoebe underscore Bridges. And you can follow, you should follow, our Liz on Twitter as well, where she is at Liz underscore Buckley. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. 
Welcome to Jenny Off the Blocks, that time of the week where we cruise over the finish line as we discuss all things women's sport. There's a lot to get through today, so I'm just going to crack on with this week's roundup in which we first visit Eugene, Oregon for the World Athletics Championships. Sorry, I had to say it like that because I'm only human, aren't I? Also, just a quick heads up, it's hotter than Satan's ball bag in here as you all understand because you're all going through it with me but I I am not closing the windows so there may be some ambient noise possibly my neighbour singing or doing other things who knows anyway the world athletics championships take place every two years normally that is and were postponed by a year because of covid so this event should have happened last year is what i'm saying the next championships will take place next year i guess they've decided to do that because the olympics will still be in 2024 so they can't just change the year that the championships happen on you know like forever as we've discussed on the podcast before athletes train to peak at certain times in their training cycle so moving things around does kind of throw everything off a very fine and delicate balance is that relevant here i don't know to be honest but we have seen some slightly surprising results defending champion katarina johnson thompson finished eighth in the heptathlon that could be as much to do with the injuries she struggled with since 2019 Dina Asher-Smith, despite equaling her British record of 10.83 seconds in the 100 metres, she eventually finished fourth in the final. She bagged a silver in the 100 metre in 2019 and, of course, the gold in the 200 metres. She's qualified for the 200 metre semi-final, finishing second in her heat. That takes place at around 2am BST, so by the time you listen to this on Wednesday, you'll know if she's still in contention. Congratulations to Shelley-Anne Fraser-Price of Jamaica, who won a record fifth 100 metre title just a quick note on Dina Asher-Smith it's not that she's crap or injured or or anything like that she's actually in pretty good form it's just such a competitive field at this point in time Thank God for Laura Muir, who picked up a medal for GB in the 1500 metres. A bronze. Congratulations, Laura. In cricket, England women are having a lovely time against South Africa. In the one-day international series, they picked up a third consecutive win this week by a massive 109 runs, no less. And thanks, in no small part, to a century from Tammy Beaumont. So England lead the entire series 8-2, having won all three one-day internationals and drawn the test match. There are now four 2020 matches which get underway as of Thursday and these are happening in the UK so you can get tickets. Now to the Euros. Tricky one to cover because it's Tuesday where I am and at the time of recording we still don't know whether or not England manager Serena Wiegmann will be present for their quarterfinal match against Spain which is taking place tomorrow or tonight if you're listening on Wednesday. Wiegmann was unable to attend England's last group match against Northern Ireland which they won 5-0 because she tested positive for Covid. If we win our quarterfinal, we'll be up against Sweden or Belgium in the semi-finals next week. Sweden topped Group C with seven points. Belgium go through as runners-up of Group D on four points. This is a bold thing to say, and generally predictions bite me on the ass, but I would fancy our chances against either of those teams. I'm not so sure, however, that I fancy our chances against Spain. We're a bit rubbish in our first group match. We were fantastic in in our second. And our final group match against Northern Ireland, I thought, again, we didn't look like we were playing as freely. We didn't look as ruthless. We should have beat Northern Ireland by more than that. 
in my opinion. Although, you know, it's a it's a derby, so who knows? But I, it's very, very hard to say what's going to happen. Spain finished second in Group B after a pretty almighty German side who topped their group. But look, that was the toughest group in my opinion. However, I'm going to call it now, England v Germany in the final. I will regret saying this. I mostly just think it's a shame that there were only four groups and we missed the whole round of 16, which we see in the Men's World Cup and the and the Men's Euro. I mean, in the men's game, they, they literally let anyone play. I know there's an argument that the quality is therefore diluted. However, as I'm probably about to be reminded again, anything can happen in football. I'd just like to have seen more matches, to be honest. Some exciting news before I knob off. The inaugural Women's Tour de France, or Le Tour Femme, gets underway on Sunday and you can watch it in the UK on Eurosport. OK, it only lasts for a week compared to the men's, the route for which a group of women have been completing a week in advance of the men for years. And the men's event lasts, checks notes, 24 days still. Let's be measured. Let's not make perfect the enemy of the good. Let's take the wins and let's recognise that there is still some room for improvement. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, it's a film about two women fighting to the death over a man what's not to like right <laughs> indeed this week we watched robert zemeckis's star-studded 1992 schlocky horror show death becomes her or alternative title snakes with permanently perky tits uh-huh. or alternative title seriously what did happen to baby jane uh-huh. written by martin donovan and david cope it was the start of big things for cope who went on to pen 1993's jurassic park you all know how i feel about jurassic park mm-hmm. 1996's mission impossible and 2002 spider-man he is now one of the most successful screenwriters of all time in terms of u.s box office receipts he did also write Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal School, so I can only hope he's feeling really fucking embarrassed about that. How should he feel about Death Becomes Her? Well, we'll find out. Hmm. At the time Death Becomes Her was made, director and producer Zemeckis was a hot name to be involved with, having scored huge hits with Romancing the Stone, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the Back to the Future trilogy, which explains why big, like, huge names... Goldie Horn, Bruce Willis, and will you look at that? It's only Meryl fucking Streep. Mm-hmm. Were happy to climb aboard what the writers had assumed would be a small-scale indie production. Lols, there is nothing mm-hmm. small-scale about Death Becomes Her, which had a $55 million budget and is jam-packed with special FX. Indeed, it was hugely significant in pioneering new CGI techniques that would be furthered and used in Jurassic Park the following year. No surprise then that Death Becomes Her's only Oscar was for Best Visual Effects, which also bagged it a BAFTA. It also took home a Golden Globe. Well, more accurately, Meryl Streep took home a Golden Globe for her against-type comic performance as a vivacious, vain and vicious Madeleine Ashton. It did well at the box office, sort of okay at the box office, bringing in $149 million worldwide, although audiences did not love it, not by a long chalk, perhaps due to its undiluted mean-spiritedness. There is zero moral responsibility in Death Becomes Her. Critics were even less sold. 
Though impressed by Horn and Streep's performances, they were not convinced by Zemeckis's, that is quite hard to say, <laughs> satire, ability to keep the hectic storyline interesting, or weird obsession with mutilated women. Mm. And yet, over the past 30 years, Death Becomes Her has become a cult classic, particularly within the LGBTQ plus community, with the characters of Madeline and Helen inspiring countless drag performers, and indeed a runway on season seven of RuPaul's Drag Race. What does that mean? They do like a catwalk and they choose like a, a, a reference, yeah. oh, okay. and it was one of the references on it. So, Hannah, Jen, have you ever dressed up as Madeline and Helen and maybe flounced about in your flat? house slash seen it before i've seen it loads before weirdly i don't know why i've seen it so many times before as we'll go into but yeah i've seen it a, a bunch of times ah, that's a surprise hannah mm. a no to all of those questions <laughs> no okay the plot bored titless by likable female characters ruled by a moral compass Dive right into Death Becomes Her, where it's 1978 and Helen, that's Goldie Horn, and Madeline, that's Shreep, have been frenemies for, well, forever. When glamour Madeline steals homely Helen's boyfriend, Dr. Ernest Menville, that's Bruce Willis, a spineless but talented plastic surgeon, seemingly entirely led by his dick dangle, <laughs> Helen spirals into a whole load of cliches about single women before deciding upon revenge. Cut to the mid-1980s. Madeline and Ernest's relationship has gone as sour as his booze-soaked breath and his once sought-after surgery skills are now put to use as a mortician. But, more distressingly for Madeline, her looks have started to fade, which mm. is bad news when you're a Hollywood star. When Helen returns looking like a sex bomb and set on winning Ernest back, Madeline is determined to do whatever it takes to stay young and relevant. Enter Lyle von Ruman, a nearly nude Isabella Rossellini, armed with a magic <laughs> potion promising a youthful appearance at a cost. I mean, yeah. Wowzers. Wowzers. Why are her like, henchmen dressed like gladiators? Why aren't your henchmen dressed like gladiators, Joan? <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> so, you see, it turns out that being immortal doesn't make you invulnerable. And with both Madeline and Helen full of eternal youth juice, but prone to gruesome injuries coming from all sides, the battle for Ernest moves from being spurred by ego to being spurred by the necessary maintenance his skills as a mortician can help with. Ernest is not up for this arrangement and, after a series of failed attempts to stop him, manages to scarper and forge a new life away from the living dead in Beverly Hills. Fast forward to Ernest's funeral, which, fun fact, takes place in 2022, and our two frenemies are, thanks to circumstance, still stuck with each other, while at the same time, literally falling apart. Okay, somewhat paradoxically, I think Death Becomes Her has improved with age. But sadly, that's because the obsession with women in the public eye not being allowed to age has, if anything, escalated in the past 30 years. So let's start there. At its heart, like it's got a heart, no. Death Becomes Her is amusing on society's obsession with female youth and beauty. So, women's, do you think it's successful or do you think it tries to have its cake and eat it? I struggled with it a bit because I think, like, obviously it is meant to be a comedy, but I didn't think it's, like, there's, it's not offering any kind of insight into why things are the way they are and they're such like willing participants and I don't really feel like there's it is so mean-spirited it doesn't really feel like there's any real kind of like lessons learned other than like don't be a cunt basically I guess which is quite a big lesson admittedly that quite a few people need to learn <laughs> well yeah absolutely but I, I find the premise of it 
pretty awful, actually, which is why I'm surprised that I've watched it as many times as I have, because I don't don't like this film. I don't like it. Jen's sobbing and laughing at the same time. (laughs) Hannah? Are you basically saying, is it a successful satire? Because if that's what you're saying, the answer is definitely no. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, it's not satirising the right person, is it? It's satirising the women that are vulnerable to society telling them that they are unattractive as they get older, rather than satirising the entire idea of it, I think. Exactly. That's what I wanted to say, and you've articulated it much better than I did, Hannah. (laughs) It's having a go at the wrong people, I think. It's punching down, it's not punching up. I agree with both of you, although I'll say where it does put its money where its mouth is, is the fact that it has two leading women having a lovely time while in their 40s and looking uh, fit as, as they do it, and that is Horn and Streep. Yeah. 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 They're interesting roles. Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. They're definitely interesting roles. And I think probably in 1992, there would have been less interesting roles for women of their age. There still aren't that many, to be fair. So, yeah, I'd, I would definitely give it that. That's fair. But I think if it is a satire of, you know, that sort of 50s, two women feuding stuff, the apogee of which is whatever happened to Baby Jane, I think French and Saunders do it better than this (laughs) did it. I would rather watch French and Saunders do whatever happened to Baby Jane and just see Meryl Streep doing other stuff. The fundamental thing is that you kind of feel like you should maybe be, maybe this film wants you to feel a little bit sympathetic for... Is he called David? Bruce Willis's character. Bruce Willis's character. Yeah, I think it does. Ernest, yeah. yeah. And yet he dumps someone for their best friend and then tries to throttle his wife. I mean, he's an absolute pig as well. So I don't really understand. And he gets to go off and lead a nice life afterwards. Yeah, and he is also the one, as you say, Mick, he's completely driven by his dick and he's just interested in the one that happens to be fitter at the time. And he is the one who's cutting up women to make them look younger. So he is actually the problem. I didn't yeah. feel any sympathy for him or think it wanted me to because he is so I think pathetic. they do want you to. But he's really pathetic. You have both mentioned it there. Wowzers, the graphic domestic violence lols. Ooh, that really yeah. made me go, oh shit, I hadn't remembered that bit at all. There's loads of this that I hadn't remembered despite having seen it 50,000 times. The, I didn't remember the bit at the beginning where she's like, you know, jilted by him, basically. Goldie Horn's jilted by him. He's run off with her not best friend or whatever, her frenemy. And then she goes, puts on loads of weight, sits in a flat, like eating ice cream with her bare hands. I mean, that is literally a picture of what I'm doing as soon as this recording is over. <laughs> okay, right. We're just going to do a quick Goldie Horn slash Hannah Dunleavy tick list. The cats, the food, the best, the reveling in another woman being strangled, the mental illness, fucking hell. <laughs> no, but the... the this like the idea that this guy's fucked off and like obviously that would be an upsetting experience but the idea that she just like basically fucks off and do you know what i mean like it's 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 preposterously (laughs) offensive and the only way out of it is magic exactly there's no other route out of that just magic Let's talk a little bit about the performances because I've got to say I really do enjoy Streep and Horn together. I think their dynamic Mm -hmm. is lovely even when they're being like, you know, smacking each other around with shovels. And even though I am really bored of women being pit against each other and the whole frenemies narrative, I did really enjoy watching those two together. They're both great actresses. Like they're both brilliant actresses and they're both good comedy actresses and they do it really well, I think. Like absolutely, you can't take anything 
away from their performances. I think they're fantastic in it. I just the premise of it just sits very uncomfortably with me. I actually think Bruce Willis is really good that in it as well. I think he's a really point. underrated comedy actor because I mean that's where he started. Obviously, it was giving me some some moonlighting <laughs> vibes. He was. Uh, uh, so funny in parts of it. If David in Moonlighting had been a real sad sack. That's where David came from. Yeah. I knew it. I knew there was a reason I said that. Yeah. And he is playing yeah. sort of against type once he got to the movies. And I just think he's utterly glorious in it. He almost steals the show from Streep and Horn, I think. Agreed. I'm sort of ambivalent about Bruce Willis, to be honest. is Because I've never watched any of the Die Hard films, which Mick, I'm sure you fucking love. But it's not, it's not my cup of tea. If you could see her face, listeners, she is shocked and horrified. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm pretty ambivalent. I sort of knew him more from the era of, you know, I see dead people and, and all of this garbage. And indeed, he does see dead people in this very <laughs> film, Jen. <laughs> he does. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered, just as a little tangential question, Isabella Rossellini sort of devil character, I suppose. They sell their soul to get this magic potion I do like the line where she gets Meryl Streep's character to down the potion and then she goes, now, a warning. And she goes, now yeah. a warning? Yeah. <laughs> like mm. There's some lovely comic time in there. But the idea is that you get siempre viva, which is living forever. I wondered how you both felt about that as a concept. Do you fancy eternal life? Does it, you know, float your boat? No. And this is the thing, this is one of the things about this film that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable is that it makes me have some like weird thoughts about death and stuff. And um, I don't know, because I, I think that's actually one thing that it does quite well, is there's that bit at the end where he's like, oh, you know, who wants to live forever? Like you sort of continue while everyone else around you dies and it's all like rubbish and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he's clearly seen the film Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> and uh yeah, I think it's it it does it does raise some interesting questions in that respect, I suppose. Well, having been to a couple of funerals of people who were anywhere between late 90s and early 100s, they're pretty quiet because everyone else is gone. Mm. So I suppose eternal life would only be valuable if you had someone that was going through exactly the same experience. Otherwise, it'd be pretty isolating, I would say. Just people going, oh, God, you're not banging on about being immortal again. <laughs> Did any of it make you laugh? Because it is a comedy. It's a comedy horror. And while I was, as soon as I started watching it, thought, oh, I kind of know how the conversation is going to go on Monday. <laughs> um, I did giggle at some things. Yeah, I think it is. Again, the performances in it are really good and they are funny. And I don't think it's not funny. I just hate the premise. Of it. <laughs> it, it had quite a hard time, really, this film, because it was very hot. And <laughs> I was kind of just slumped in front of it. It affects all areas of Hannah's life. It's just... It does. It, it affects my brain. While kind of feel like it was funny i can't think of any specific examples which isn't a good indication no. but yeah i thought it was all right i thought when i was watching it i thought well we're gonna have a lot to talk about and that was my primary feeling i came away with rather than oh i'd really like to watch that mm -hmm. again i'm gonna ask rated or dated now but then maybe have a little chat about it i'm interested to see what you both say so rated or dated yeah this is hard because it's it, it looks good as in the effects have stood up, you know, I think they're all right. Mm. Like when Goldie Hawn's got that massive hole in her, that all looks good. And I, 
Yeah, I feel much the same about it as I did about The Witches of Eastwick in that it's just, it just wasn't right. It was a nub of a good idea that of a great satire or whatever that just never really came to fruition. And I feel like maybe if they'd set it in the 50s, it might have worked a bit better because it was when sort of old school Hollywood glamour and all of that stuff. So I'm going to say dated, but I didn't hate it. Okay, Jen? I, yeah, I think it's really dated and, and not like the special effects will look good. And um, I just, I don't think you'd get away with making it now because I think it's criticism is in the wrong place and it is punching down rather than punching up, is my opinion. I know like they're both like really successful, wealthy, attractive women or whatever, but the idea that it's sort of somehow their fault for being assholes rather than society's fault for being awful, dated for me. That's interesting you say it wouldn't be made now. They have, In 2017, it became a musical, so I think it is still oh, seen really? as relevant. Yeah, I don't know why that should surprise me, because we live in a very, very misogynist society, but I think, I'm sure it's not what he was trying to do. It's like Hannah said, I think there's like a nubbin of a good idea in it, but I think the application of it has, has gone wrong for me. I think it's rated, because I do think the questions it raises are more relevant today and I hear what you're saying about the 90 if it had a 1950 setting but I think we're supposed to see that Madeline was from that era and now she's in the like in in 1978 when we opened she's doing a weird musical version of a Tennessee Williams play mm. her career isn't going great and it is that trying to harp mm. back to those glory old glamour days and while I, I do think the satire is aimed quite a lot in the wrong place I kind of root for them, even though they're really unpleasant, because I think it's also in there that they are trying to outwit a game that is rigged against them, that they're aware of that. I think there is a knowingness to it. Mm. But they get punished. Yes. Yeah. But they also get eternal yeah. life. Yeah, but it doesn't end well for them, does it? And the idea also that it's two, it's two women fighting to the death for a man who's completely forgiven for any wrongdoing that he's done. He's completely exonerated. I think Hannah's right. They get they they are unfairly punished for being victims of society. I do quite like seeing female characters with absolutely no good in them, though. <laughs> That's quite yeah, quite yeah, refreshing. Yeah. I am solo once again. Anyway, <laughs> what are we watching next? Well, we are never going to grow old and never die again <laughs> next week. Watching 1987's The Lost Boys, which I've never seen. Sister. There's just going to be a lot of singing for me. Oh, this is lovely, guys. (laughs) Jen's going to open the windows to her sex neighbour again now. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.